This paid program may not represent the views of Hubbard Broadcasting Incorporated or Federal News Radio. Statements and opinions of this broadcast are solely those of individual contributors or advertisers as indicated. Federal News Radio does not take responsibility for those statements or opinions and accepts no responsibility or liability for any inaccuracy, errors, or omissions reported during this program. Welcome to the Business of Government Hour, a conversation about management with a government executive who is changing the way government does business. The Business of Government Hour is produced by the IBM Center for the Business of Government, which was created in 1998 to encourage discussion and research into new approaches to improving government effectiveness. You can find out more about the center by visiting us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. And now, the Business of Government Hour. Welcome to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host and leadership fellow at the IBM Center for the Business of Government. How has COVID-19 impacted the U.S. Army Reserve? What is the mission of the U.S. Army Reserve's Urban Augmentation Medical Task Force? And how has Ready Force X prepared the U.S. Army Reserve for its COVID-19 response? I'll explore these questions and so much more with our very special guest, Lieutenant General Charles Lucky. Chief of Army Reserve and Commanding General of the U.S. Army Reserve Command. General Lucky, it's great to have you back on the show. I wish we were able to do this in person. Michael, it's great to be back. Thanks for having me. Appreciate the opportunity to to spend a little time with you again today. Would you tell us a little bit about the history and mission of the U.S. Army Reserve? How does your organization support the overall mission of the U.S. Army and the U.S. Department of Defense? So, uh, as you know, we've talked about this before. So, 1908... Uh, the Army uh, recognized that it had a, it had a, had a capacity challenge when it came to uh, primarily combat medicine. And a very, in my view, a very smart, wise decision was made to try to increase the Army's ability to generate at scale uh, combat medicine capability for the nation um, in the event of war. And did so by essentially tapping into what I regard as sort of extant uh, that would mean, you know, existing expertise, capability, and from a technical perspective, readiness um, inside the medical community of the United States. And so reached into hospitals across America where, where doctors and nurses and, and all kinds of medical professionals were practicing medicine and maintaining a high degree of readiness on a, on a daily basis. And then was able to bring that in as an additional additive capacity of the Army in the event of um, major mobilization through the notion of having a reserve that you would call upon as needed, when needed, to bring forward, uh, to generate capability for the nation and a massive cost savings, obviously. Mm-hmm. So, you know, ironically, you know, you say, so how's it work? So, you know, it, it, we'll probably talk about this today a little bit, but uh, sitting here now, uh, having you know, had many three years since we saw each other, um, I find myself uh, amazed by the fact that we're talking about sort of Army <laughs> Reserve birth. Uh, 1908, and now the fight we're in against uh, COVID-19 here in 2020, and we, we can talk about this as much or as little as you want, but w- one of the things that I, I can assure you is, again, true to our d- sort of DNA, the Army Reserve has a, a very, very fast rate of, of uh, you know, of uh, generating capability 
uh, been able to again bring additive capacity at scale to the to the enterprise at a, at a significant cost savings to the taxpayer. So we find ourselves sort of at the end of my four years of command, sort of back you know sort of back where things started in 1908. As far as you know, you know what's what is the core competency of the Army Reserve? Why is it a good investment for the American people? And again, to shut you want to talk uh, COVID-19 and what we're doing? Yeah, absolutely. So. You know, what are your specific duties and responsibilities as Chief of Army Reserve and Commanding General of the U.S. Army Reserve Command? So, as you know, Michael, they're really the, the two different roles legally. One is the Chief of the Army Reserve, I'm, so principal member of the Army staff. I'm also what's uh, what's known as an appropriation uh, sponsor. That is a, somebody who's responsible uh, for accounting back to the Congress for money that's specifically appropriated for the Army Reserve by the Congress. So at the strategic level, at the sort of corporate uh, level of the army, um, I, I'm responsible for leading and uh, setting policy and in making investment decisions for one of the three components of the army. That would be what we call Compo Three or Component Three, which is the Army Reserve, which, as you know, is a federal force all the time. Um, unlike uh, the Guard, which obviously mm-hmm. has responsibilities yep. to the states and governors. And then, as this is the commanding general of the Army Reserve, with my headquarters at Fort Bragg. That's really the operational command that uh, oversees, integrates, and uh, and supports the operations and, and uh, activities of some 200,000 soldiers and civilians spread across 20 time zones around the world. So operational responsibilities, primarily my, in my under the, the mantle of being the commanding general and then sort of strategic uh, responsibilities and uh, opportunities to engage as the chief of the Army Reserve. So, General, one of the reasons we weren't able to do this in person is obviously because of the pandemic we we were experiencing. So, you know, given the pandemic national emergency, I'm interested in understanding uh, the role of the U.S. Army Reserve in the response to the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, Would you give us an overview of what the U.S. Army Reserve has done in response to COVID-19? Yeah, so at the, I would say um, a number of different aspects of the, of the, the Army Reserve's uh, contribution to this fight um, as a part of the total Army and the Joint Force. Um, first of all, in, inside the, the national response framework and inside the, the way we organize from a joint perspective, that would be Army, Navy, Air Force, Marine Corps under the Joint Staff and the Department of Defense, the Army um, a, is a force provider to the combatant command, in this case, U.S. Northern Command, to provide capabilities uh, to support that combatant commander, uh, General Shaughnessy out in in Colorado, uh, with capabilities to get after whatever the challenge is in the homeland. And and as you said, COVID-19 is is the challenge we're talking about today. So within that framework, uh, there are certain formations inside the Army Reserve that are essentially earmarked um, they are predestined to have to go do certain things in support of the combatant command as, as requested and required. So the 377th uh, Theater Sustainment Command, for instance, which is one of our two-star commands down in Bell Chase, Louisiana, has a go-to-war mission of supporting uh, U.S. NORTHCOM. So that formation of soldiers in uh, Louisiana was immediately uh, mobilized, brought into this fight to support the Joint Forces Land uh, Component Commander down at uh, San Antonio. And that would be our North or Fifth Army, commanded by Lieutenant General Richardson. So the 377th Theater Sustainment Command immediately went uh, to deploy to support her, um, as did the 4th Expeditionary Sustainment Command, a smaller unit, a one-star command, also Army Reserve, that is essentially 
again, is earmarked to go support the JFLIC, uh, Army North, on a bad day. And so those two capabilities, the 505th MI Brigade, which is a military intelligence capability that uh, supports our North uh, as required, was also um, uh, mobilized to support that effort. And then a a panoply of other capabilities, whether it was the 76th Operational uh, Response Command out of uh, Salt Lake City, Utah, which became one of the command and control nodes to support General Richardson out in the western United States. Um, a number of other engineer assets and uh, sustainment assets, whether they're sustainment brigades or, or combat uh, service support battalions, different capabilities inside the Army Reserve, all mo- mobilized fairly aggressively and quickly to support uh, the, the, the Army uh, and the Army's uh, responsibilities to support uh, the, the, the combatant command. All of that happened sort of as pre-planned things that we would do. And then the, the one-off which uh, we can probably talk about in more detail because it is sort of a unique um, and instructive mission, um, is the, I call them the ERBOGs. Those are the Urban Augmentation Medical Task Forces, which were essentially designed, organized, marshaled, that is people actually came together and deployed to do something that had never been done before in less than two weeks' time. So that's that was an additive uh, medical capability that we, we provided to Army North, mm-hmm. which frankly never existed before this crisis. That's great, General. Um, you know, I was wondering, last time we spoke, you mentioned Ready Force X, a construct you created. Uh, can you explain to our audience how that model, Ready Force X, prepared your team in its COVID-19 response? Yeah, so I want to be careful to not put too fine a point on this because sure. – um, it, well, only only because, you know, I don't want this to come across as self-serving. But as you know, uh, when you and I talked three years ago, we were in the be- sort of the, the beginning stages of uh, working our way through this construct, RFX, Ready Force X. And the idea was to be able to look at a number of different potential war plans that drive a requirement for the Army Reserve to provide capability um, to a combatant commander, potentially in the Pacific, potentially in Europe, uh, to go support uh, the Army's contribution to fighting a, a major war against a peer competitor in what I would regard as an expeditionary uh, manner, which means you have to deploy from the homeland, from the United States, uh, overseas to be able to conduct operations. So as you know, we really took a look at, okay, what are the what are the things we have to be able to provide to support the, the, the war fighter, to support the war plan, and how much time do we have to do it? And when you and I last talked, we were well down the road to doing the analytics on the what, in other words, what sorts of things would would have to come out of the Army Reserve to provide that capability. And we were doing a pretty good job of figuring out um, sort of how long we thought it would take us to generate that capability. Um, since you and I last talked, what we also did was we figured out sort of if you needed that capability on the fourth or fifth day of a major confrontation, how much time would we need inside the Army Reserve to be able to mobilize certain capabilities prior to the beginning of a war in order to have those those capabilities in place in time to create the effect that, that we needed to create. So that process um, really got us thinking in terms of RFX almost more as a verb than a noun Mm -hmm. Uh, because it became a process by which we looked at ourselves in terms of current readiness and then what things did we have to do uh, to get ourselves more ready, more capable, and then deployed into position to be able to do what we needed to support a war plan. So I guess what I would say is – all of the work that went into doing what I just articulated, you know, it ended up being, I mean, literally hundreds and hundreds of different types of capabilities that we looked at. 
Um, l- looking at drawing soldiers out of over 13, 1400 different formations to generate the capabilities required. Um, as I think I told you last time, you know, on scale, this is somewhere between 35 and 42,000 soldiers, depending on what environment we're talking about. So all of the work that went into that, both in terms of systems and sort of everybody understanding intellectually what we're doing and why we were doing it, became, in, in my view, sort of the foundational predicate requirement uh, for us to be able to do what we just did over the last month and a half. So, General, what is an Urban Augmentation Medical Task Force, and can you tell us more about its role in supporting the hospitals and field medical sites? Yes. So as to their role, the bottom line is uh, in a very short period of time, a couple senior leaders thinking through, okay, what forces could we generate? How quickly could we do it? And what would they need to be able to do? Came up with a basically a construct largely borrowed from a model that's been worked out between um, Department of Health and Human Services and FEMA to how would you stage sort of an expeditionary um, emergency hospital uh, with with you know beds and some capabilities and then where would you go and what sorts of medical capabilities would you bring uh, to support that construct and so we so we just sort of extrapolate a little bit from the work that had been done by 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 those agencies and said you know we think we can provide at least 15 maybe more of these 85 person task forces on relatively short notice to go in and help medical health care providers in those places where they really need um, additional support in terms of capacity or capability. And we had a couple of predicate rules. One was we're not going to bring any equipment. We're going to come in very light. We're going to sort of help them, but we're not we're not going to spend you know months bringing our all of our own stuff. And then the other one was we're not going to bring any of our uh, we, we won't bring any of our own sort of medical supplies like pharmaceuticals and that kind of thing. So the idea was to be able to go fast and be able to come in light with a lot of very knowledgeable, skilled medical professionals uh, to augment our uh, fellow citizens out there working in uh, in commercial, you know, in, in the commercial sector, the private sector, and medicine. Um, and so that was the idea. Um, and and what it did was, and I don't want to take all the credit for designing this because you know it was it was not mine to design. It was just mine to make sure we got it got it all done. But but. One of the things it did was it gave us a lot of flexibility because uh, because these teams now could move quickly and they could and they could and we could split them up and we could help multiple medical facilities if they needed help uh, with one task force. So that d- drove us to a sort of a a very flexible way of looking at this. And one of the things we decided right away was we're not going to call it anything we've ever called another formation because it'll confuse people. We got to give it mm-hmm. a new name so that everybody understands what we're doing is different, and so that they're intellectually they wouldn't be constrained by o- other uh, things that we've done in the past or other formations. They this would give them an opportunity to sort of. In my, in my words, move into more creative space about how you would leverage these capabilities. And so it actually turned out to work, uh, frankly, even better than I I'd, I'd, I'd dreamed that it might in terms of being able to do things quickly and help a lot of people and lift the spirits of a nation in doing so. As far as my visiting, and I, I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, but I, yeah, so I did, I traveled before the teams deployed small group of uh, of uh, my travel team and I moved to about five, six, seven different locations to see multiple of these formations that they were forming because um, I wanted to give them my sense of what my expectation of them was as their leader. 
Um, I sent a note to each one of the commanders of these task forces, letting them know they were commanders, that they're going to do something that had never been done before. They were a part of history, and I let them know how proud I was of them. And then we went out to see them to make sure that they were getting themselves sort of psychologically and, and from a training perspective and from an equipping perspective, when it came to personal protective equipment, uh, they had what they needed to get in the fight. And then about a week and a half after we they started deploying, we went out to a number of communities around the country, Detroit and Boston and Connecticut and down through uh, New York City, down to New Jersey and through uh, Philadelphia and some other places, talking and watching these teams in action um, across America. And it was, I'll just say, extraordinarily rewarding as a leader of this component. That's great, General. So, you know, very important. So how has COVID-19 itself impacted the U.S. Army Reserve? Uh, well, from a mobilization perspective, it's I think I think one of the things that has done for the Army Reserve is just given a lot of leaders um, at different echelons of responsibility inside the Army Reserve a level of confidence that um, RFX is a is not only a viable construct, but it's an extraordinarily powerful way uh, to generate capability quickly. And it what it requires is sort of a different way of thinking about. Everything from doctrinal formations to missions to mission command, you know, who's in charge of whom for what, um, getting sort of more sophisticated in our thoughts on doing what I call elegant C2, elegant command and control, where you don't have to own everything. You know, you have to you, you take care of those things that you own, but then you commit these resources to, to help somebody else out, which is exactly what these task forces are doing. So I think it's done a lot for us in terms of us getting uh, a very real sense of the power of thinking differently about how we generate readiness as we move into the future. And I, I put it this way. We've traditionally inside the Army Reserve thought, you know, we'd get two or three or four years of time to train a unit to deploy to go to Kuwait or Afghanistan or Iraq. You know, we, we had units that felt that they needed two or three years of advance notice before they went to a training exercise at Fort McCoy. You know, and, <laughs> and I think we've turned that whole thing, you know, on its head and said, no, you don't need three years. You'd be amazed what you can do in three days if you put some energy into it. So we've talked for the last three years about leadership, energy, and execution, and I'll just just tell you, I think with the Urbox in particular, based on the fact that we took a non-doctrinal formation and gave it a non-doctrinal mission and put it into a non-doctrinal environment in less than two weeks, I think what the Urbox have done to validate RFX and give all of us a sense of, yes, this is about leadership. This is about energy. This is about execution. Um, I think puts the Army Reserve in a very good place as we move into the future. What are the U.S. Army Reserve's strategic priorities? We will ask Lieutenant General Charles Lucky. Chief of Army Reserve and Commanding General of U.S. Army Reserve Command, when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour. To support government financial performance and accountability, financial systems must meet certain standards, and relying on outdated financial systems inhibits progress. ERP vendors are encouraging clients to move to the cloud and consider new technologies such as robotic process automation, blockchain, and AI to enhance financial productivity. Download the IBM Center Report Financial Management for the Future at businessofgovernment.org to learn why and how government can evolve to meet the demands of a digital world. The Ebola crisis in West Africa from 2014 to 2016 was an epidemic that put emphasis on global capacity to respond to international disasters. How can government better assess the needs of those affected and help them? The IBM Center Report Responding to Global Health Crisis by Professor Jennifer Widner 
breaks down the U.S. response to the Ebola crisis, and provides insights on lessons learned that may aid the government responses in the future. Download your free copy, Responding to Global Health Crisis, at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and our guest today is Lieutenant General Charles Lucky, Chief of Army Reserve and Commanding General of the U.S. Army Reserve Command. General Lucky, as you've led the U.S. Army Reserve over these last four years, what were your key strategic priorities and what are they now? Well, you know, uh, it's always been about readiness. I mean, and what I mean by that is at the end of the day, uh, to be relevant, the Army Reserve has to be ready enough uh, to be available, accessible, and deployable to do whatever it is the Army needs us to do on a time frame that, that makes it relevant. Uh, waiting for, you know, four or five, six months, uh, the pace of change, the violence of action we would anticipate in, in any sort of major conflict in the future just drives us to a place where readiness is, is essentially the key to relevance of the formation. And then as I think, you know, I told you before, it's really about, okay, so what are the, what are the things that we need to do to make sure we are every day and every way getting a little better at maintaining and, and developing greater readiness? So that takes us right to support of our families and support from employers who are willing to share the best talent in the world with us um, as we lead America's Army Reserve. And so, you know, I would say priorities, readiness, number one, right behind that because it's a huge enabler are both the, the families that support um, our soldiers and share their soldiers with us and then the employers that do the same thing. And then there's always been this conversation, and you've had, you and I've had this before about mm-hmm. sort of the the third thing that that I've wanted everybody to keep an eye on, which is the future, um, and making sure as we look to the future, we're looking at ways to better leverage the Army Reserve sort of pervasive, uh, dispersed uh, infiltration of America across all sectors of the economy, and frankly, not just the United States, but around the globe, leverage that. Um, sort of private sector or at least non, you know, uh, non-military public sector uh, sort of infusion of talent back into, uh, into the Army uh, by looking at those places where change is fast and the, the private sector is way out in front and we got soldiers that work in all these places who are able to bring some of that back, both the ethos and in some cases the knowledge to help uh, get us better, faster, as, uh, as far as staying, staying with and in some cases getting ahead of the pace of change around the world. So those things have never really changed in terms of mm-hmm. priorities for us. Um, and, and, and I think the you know, proof's sort of in the pudding, but um, at least in this last uh, six weeks or so, you know, I think we've seen a lot of goodness come from those priorities. General Lucky, how have the challenges you face since taking over this command evolved or changed? And how can one turn challenges into opportunities? So let me take the second part of that, sure. um, just because I think that's I mean, that's a that's a great question, and it's one frankly, I ask myself uh, pretty much every day, because I th- I frankly think you sort of have to, you know, and mm-hmm. I may have shared this with you before, and I want to give credit to Hal Moore, you know, um, but in the book, and I think it's, it shows in the movie too, you know, we were soldiers once and young. You know, General Moore talks about um, the challenges a leader has in terms of understanding a few basic things, and one is what is happening. And then and another one right behind it is what is not happening. And then the third one is, okay, now as a leader, uh, what do I need to do 
having identified what's not happening, you know, wh- how do I take that sort of creative space and, and, and leverage it to move the entire team, the entire organization to, to a better place? So I find myself doing that a lot, trying to figure, okay, what's not happening? Where, where are we not thinking or where are we missing an opportunity here to leverage what we've learned or the challenges that we're confronting? I'll give you one example of sort of how I look at it, and this may or may not be helpful to you and the listeners, but when I think about Let's just take the last six weeks. When I, t- when I look at the, the implications of this challenge for America and for the world uh, of uh, the pandemic and how it's driving um, a, a number of different aspects of our culture and of our economy and challenges that it presents, as a leader of this component, I'm like, okay, so what is what is the commander of the Army Reserve or the things I could or should be thinking about uh, to better help the Army and help the nation? And one of the things I immediately think about is, well, are there ways we can better leverage um, some of the efficiencies that the Army Reserve can bring to the total fight by being even, you know, more, I guess, aggressive about where do we see places where we can bring huge value and a a lot of readiness and a lot of capability and a lot of deterrent effect at a relatively small investment for the U.S. taxpayers. Because I I do think there's a future out there where uh, the financial – uh, the fiscal challenges um, on the public sector and the Department of Defense become um, even even more of a challenge than they are today. And in that future, the Army Reserve needs to be positioned and needs to be thinking about uh, how does it better support the Army and the, and, uh, the Department of Defense uh, by being more creative about how we leverage sort of our excellent ready, readiness with our professional force. And so that's those are the sorts of things that I think about yeah. when I think about crisis or challenge. Very interesting, General. So, you know, over the last four years, I was interested to know of the challenges you face and how they've evolved. But what has surprised you most in leading the U.S. Army Reserve? So I, and I, 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 <laughs> I, no, I knew you were going to ask me, and it's, so, I, so I'm not saying you, you surprised me. I just, it's a great question. It's, but it's, uh, you know, let me put it this way: it is a very large, complex organization, and it, it is a lot of awesome people. You know, it is, and it's the soldiers, it's the civilians, it's the families, it's the employers that support them, it's the contractors that that uh, do tremendous work for us in many different places, and so it, I would just tell you, I think the the, the complexity of the organization that things that I continue to discover, I mean, even till this to this day, I continue to discover about my own tribe, my own team. Um, as I tell people all the time, you know, being, in, being commanding the Army Reserve is a little bit like just, you know, you're on a scavenger hunt, you know, and you, new things keep popping up that you didn't know you were responsible for. I asked somebody this morning, I said, who made this decision, you know, to do, do X? Well, sir, you did that a year ago. I said, oh, okay, just checking, you know. So I'm not sure anybody really gets prepared to take command of an organization of 200,000 people plus and then 350,000 family members. And um, and it's not so much the budget or the size of the, the appropriation. It's really more about the complexity um, of, the, of the organization. So I'd say that surprised me a little bit just because I w- wasn't used to it. The other thing I think that I won't say surprised me so much but really reassured me was um, the longer we went down this path, what I call the road to awesome, um, and talk to soldiers about readiness and all of the different things we did in terms of training, whether it was cold steel or you know uh, war- warrior exercises or other sort of things that we did to sort of increase the level of readiness and message that the message of the the importance of being capable, being combat ready, being lethal. Um, the level to which that resonated with soldiers, I think, has been incredibly. Uh, reassuring for me as a senior leader that you know I'm leading the formation of soldiers that by and large not not all of them but by and large 
really, really um, appreciate being on this team and appreciate the fact that they are soldiers and they do make a massive contribution to the nation and national security. And they do derive tremendous personal satisfaction from that. I think that's been really reassuring for me as a citizen to lead a formation of uh, so many soldiers that have really embraced the construct of readiness, embraced the construct, the, the ethos of, of selfless service. You know, I've, I don't know if you've seen any of the stuff that I've put out there in the That's social true. media space over the last three or four years, but, you know, I've talked to them about everything from what does it mean to support the people of the United States and you know, defend the American way of life and what is the American way of life. And so a lot of great conversations with a lot of wonderful soldiers has been extraordinarily rewarding. Again, that hasn't really surprised me so much as reassured sure. me. Mm-hmm. Um, I, the other one that didn't surprise me. Uh, but I can just I, I can reaffirm it is hard driving cultural change in, in any organization, much less one this this large just requires, I mean, relentless enthusiasm. And I'd say stamina because I, this is a large organization and um, you got to hit the sled every day and you got to do it with a smile on your face. And I tell my soldiers, hey, the, the way we do this is we lead with love and we're present. We stay very much present. Um, and message the power of uh, the, the relationships and connectivity to us, uh, between us as soldiers who serve the people of the United States and live the Army values. So it's been, it's been a great ride. General, are there any key accomplishments by your team that you are most proud of to date? And, and perhaps you could highlight in detail some of them. Well, let me start with the last one. I, I'm, I, you know, I just, um, I, I think that um, in a relatively quick period of time, that would be in a couple of weeks, a relatively small number of soldiers, and in this case, mostly but not exclusively medical professionals, by virtue of their willingness to move quickly, to don you know PPE, you know personal protective equipment, and move into uh, COVID-saturated environments, whether it was in hospitals or makeshift hospitals around America, um, and to do that and to be side by side with their fellow citizens who never served in the U.S. military, to see that up close and personal myself and to get a sense of the fact that um, our soldiers who have served in Afghanistan and Iraq and Kuwait and around the world and other places, for them to finally be able to serve right there, uh, shoulder to shoulder with their fellow citizens, in most cases not from their own state. We flew soldiers all over the country to do this mission. But to see the connectivity and and the appreciation that their fellow citizens felt for them um, has just been eye-watering in terms of uh, the level of connectivity between the American people and the U.S. military that these sort of embedded teams have brought into, in, I would just say it, in term, in t- to the, the imagination of the American people. Mm-hmm. And I'm extraordinarily proud of, of the fact that these, these, these kids, these young soldiers, you know, lifted the spirits of a nation. I, if I can give you one vignette, and I don't want to stick on this too long, but you know, so we were, in a, we were in a medical facility. I'm not going to name names because I don't want to offend anybody. But we were in a medical facility not too long ago in a fairly affluent town in America, a town I know pretty well. And I say affluent, I don't mean it's all a, a bunch of, you know, extraordinarily rich people, but, it, but a, a, a town that is very um, prosperous city in America. And we were in a medical facility where the senior leadership told us, the civilian leadership at that hospital told me when I went to visit them, uh, that they were down to two days of uh, uh, PPE for their employees. So they had two days left of stockages for personal protective equipment for their own employees. All their ventilators or the majority of their ventilators had been consumed by 
patients, and that many members, and when I say many, I mean more than five, members of their uh, medical staff had either died or been seriously infected with COVID, and that they were literally in extremis. They were, they were feeling very much like they may not be able to get through this crisis. And then the Urbog showed up. You know, 85 soldiers out of America's Army Reserve showed up in that in that hospital in that city and and literally changed the dynamic from a morale perspective, uh, from a confidence perspective. And what the senior leadership of the hospital told me was, when you showed up, and I don't mean me, I'm talking mm-hmm. about the Army. When the Army showed up, we knew we were going to make it. We didn't know how, but we knew we were going to make it. Just think about that. I mean, you can't. 85 soldiers created that effect in that city in America. And that is, uh, that's powerful. So I'm extraordinarily proud of that. Um, beyond that, I mean, I, I, we could talk about training, we could talk about exercises, we could talk about readiness, we could talk about deployments. Uh, what I've seen all over the world over the last four years, checking in on our soldiers everywhere I've gone, I've, I said, I've seen enthusiasm, professionalism, um, interest, uh, motivation, desire to serve more, on and on and on again, uh, a persistent sense of selfless service. And the satisfaction that comes with that and the sense of self-worth that comes with that, um, it's just been very reassuring uh, for me as a leader and, frankly, as a citizen uh, to know that um, there are all kinds of great Americans out there. And they aren't all wearing uniform, by the way. I mean, I, so <laughs> I, met, I, met a lot of, I met a lot of awesome people along the way that uh, learned a lot about the Army, um, I think, through America's Army Reserve over the last four years through us. But in, in this day and age, um, it, it's easy to read a lot and get, get sort of down about things and, and concerned about the future. And that's, and that's all fair. I mean, not, we all should be thinking about tomorrow um, and help shaping it. But there's a lot of great people out there that just are all about giving back and serving selflessly and taking care of their fellow citizens. And they do respond to leadership and they, and they do respond to challenge. And uh, I think that's, that is a wonderful message that I will carry with me all the days of my life. So, General Lucky, what has been the most satisfying part of your time as Chief of Army Reserve and Commanding General of the U.S. Army Reserve Command? Um, I, I think I sort of touched on it. You know, I just think um, seeing so many soldiers and, and families supporting soldiers around the world um, who are, I mean, just um, I, I would almost I would say uh, counter narrative, right? And again, it hasn't just been the soldiers. I mean, I, when I think about what I just saw over the last six weeks in uh, you know in hospitals ar- around America with our you know our civilian brothers and sisters out there working shoulder to shoulder, and again, I mean, s- s- just people out there doing s- s- hard work, selfless work, uh, unsung heroes everywhere. I think just seeing that. Um, and seeing the, the interaction between our soldiers and and their fellow citizens in a very positive, uplifting, and selfless way is a huge reminder. Um, and in my view, you know, it's a very reassuring reminder that there's a lot of goodness in the world. And there's a lot of awesome people out there doing great stuff. And I think sometimes if you read too much, uh, not that there's such a, such a thing as reading too much, but I mean, if you, you know, if, if you read too much stuff to get you down, it, it, there's some goodness in, in going out and being able to do what I've done for the last four years, which is do a lot of stuff to get you up because there's a lot of people out there that are going to make you feel really good about being a human being. So, General, what makes an effective leader? And perhaps you could share with us some of your leadership principles that you follow. So, uh, yeah, I don't want to preach on what does it mean to be an effective leader so much, but I, but I, but let me sh- share this with you. So I you know, I talk, you know until COVID nineteen and we stopped 
traveling out to do the, you know, every month I would go out to the pre-command course uh, for the leadership of the Army, officers and non-commissioned officers going into brigade and battalion command. And I talked to them about some sort of things that I just thought as a senior leader, having developed sort of a philosophy over the years, things I just gave them as food to thought to think about. And I said, you know, you don't have to do these things. I just want you to know sort of how I look at it. And, and I start off with lead with love. And I talk about be present. And I talk about the power of presence. And how if you, even if you command 200,000 people, spread, soldiers spread across 20 time zones, um, if you're really in the moment with them, even for 20 minutes, 30 minutes of a touch um, that is, that is um, I won't say emotional, but, but it really gets after the, the power of physical presence, you can, over time, you know, you can, you can, you can really change the culture of an organization because you, what you're really doing is you're reminding them of the fact that even though you've got all these other places people think you should be or could be, all these other demands, for that 20 minutes, that 30 minutes, you are there with them present in that moment in time, space, and history. And there's nothing more important for you to be doing right now than, than being with them. And I think that message for leadership about presence um, is huge. So I talk about lead with love. And I explain a little bit about what I mean by that. I don't mean being nice to people. I mean acknowledging that this is about selfless service and you, this is you to, to do this at scale. You have got to, at the end of the day, um, come to this with a, I'll just say, you know, a warm and open and embracing heart, in my view. Um, everybody's got their own style. And then what f- sort of follows into that is the conversation about presence, which I, th- again, think is a very human aspect because it's, it's almost anti-technology. You know, it's it's the opposite of texting. It's the opposite of looking at your cell phone or your your smartphone while you're out having dinner with your family. It's the opposite of those things. It's being present. Um, and then I and then I talk about unleashing the power of the team and what does that mean? Um, how do you how do you support other people to become be- their, their better selves? Um, I explain to everybody, hey, look, at the end of the day, you know. You aren't working for me. I'm working for you. This is about leadership's responsibility to the lead, to empower the lead and get and give the lead the resources they need to get after it. And acknowledge, in many cases, the lead are smarter than the leader. I mean, I don't. I'm not a doctor. You know, I I we basically you know came up on the back of an envelope with the 85 specialists, medical professionals that should be in in an urbog and an urban augmentation um, medical task force, but. You know, I guarantee probably everybody on that task force knows more about the business of medicine than I ever will. Uh, my responsibility was to give them the mission, give them the equipment, give them the means to get to where they needed to go, and then cut them loose, let them do their thing. And that's unleashing the power of the team. And then I talk about, you know, enthusiasm being a, what I call it a combat multiplier, but it's an infectious thing. And uh, people who are enthusiastic and are committed to other people, um, in my view, uh, tend to be leaders that the people want to follow because um, they sense that the leader is not about the leader. The leader is about them. The leader is about the mission. The leader is about um, making the world a better place, those sorts of things. And so those are the sort of, the, the, you know, this, I would say philosophical tenets mm-hmm. of some things I talk to, to leaders about. Um, I don't have any magic, you know, textbook for Success. I do. I commend everybody to. And I, I think I may have shared this with you before. A little piece 
was written uh, about 100 years ago uh, called Brown's Job, and it basically talks to the to the truth, which is every one of us comes to the, our, our responsibilities with our own background, our own talent, our own prejudices, our own family life, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And, and each one of us brings to that space something that's unique. And so I tell leaders all the time, hey, wherever you go, you know, own, own the space you're in. You know, be present and own that space and accept responsibility um, for your soldiers or for or for whomever you're responsible for, for coaching, teaching, and mentoring. And um, and the team will respond to that. Um, so those are the sorts of things I think I've picked up along the way. Um, I don't I don't intend to ever stop leading uh, because I think it's sort of one of those things where it just becomes a part of what you do. What are the U.S. Army Reserve's strategic priorities? We will ask Lieutenant General Charles Lucky. Chief of Army Reserve and Commanding General of U.S. Army Reserve Command, when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour. How does an agency decide upon and implement a performance management framework that will be successful for their specific administration? The IBM Center Report, a practitioner's framework for measuring results, follows the implementation and results of the CSTAT management framework in Colorado's Department of Homeland Security in hopes that it can guide others who may want to institute a similar approach. Download a practitioner's framework for measuring results by Melissa Wavelet on businessofgovernment.org today. Agile methodology has allowed for agencies to keep up with the growing demands for fast response to problem solving. The Opportunity Project, TOP, serves as a catalyst in adapting agile techniques to solve complex agency mission problems. TOP works with federal agencies to identify challenges and facilitate iterative approaches in response. In the IBM Center Report, Agile Problem Solving in Government, Joel Gurin and Katerina Ribello discuss the factors of success involved in TOP. Download your free copy today at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and our guest today is Lieutenant General Charles Lucky, Chief of Army Reserve and Commanding General of the U.S. Army Reserve Command. So, General Lucky, we last met and had a conversation in early 2017. I was wondering, how has the U.S. Army Reserve uh, changed over that time? How is it different today? I think the Army Reserve uh, sees itself differently. Um, I, I don't know that I'm right about that, Michael, but my gut tells me that um, given the fact that and – and I know this sounds really mundane, but um, you know, we, we've, we have fired more ammunition in the last four years in the Army Reserve than we probably fired collectively in you know, 20 years before that. I, can, I know for a fact that we've had you know, crew-served uh, gunnery operations and exercises around the country over the last three or four years where we've expended um, uh, more ammunition and trained more soldiers than has ever been done in the Army Reserve in any given year since you know, it started in 1908. So I think we've put a focus on the, th- the three things I talked about, you know, three, four years ago, which is capability, combat readiness, and lethality. And we continue to persistently pound away at that. Um, so that the message uh, uh, across the Army Reserve, I think, changed from how we'd seen ourselves five, six years ago, which was of a, a force that was basically in a mode of sustaining and enabling and doing incredibly important things, but not necessarily a force that was aggressively 
um, getting after agility and and speed and lethality and things that uh, we needed to be able to essentially get what I call an expeditionary mindset around, which means we had to be able to do it fast. Um, and so I think we've changed the way we see ourselves in terms of our ability to generate effects and in, in, in some cases, strategic effects or deterrent effects um, very quickly and at a significant cost savings to the taxpayer. So I think that's something that has probably been reinforced um, and I don't want to take credit for coming up with all the, that as an idea necessarily. It's just something that's always mattered to me as a as a leader and as a soldier. But I, I do think we've we've changed the culture of the organization in that regard. I think there'll be an expectation by many soldiers in America's Army Reserve as we move into the future uh, that we sort of stay on this path. I think our effects, well, let me get called something differently or named something differently. I think the underlying tenets of it um, have been validated. And I think that the Army Reserve sees itself as an RFX-type organization. You know, if I were wearing my RFX T-shirt right now, you'd see it up here. It says we're all in. And it means, you know, every, every, every individual soldier who is individually ready and prepared. So they've got the training. They've got the physical, you know, uh, fitness. They, 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 can, they know how to fire a weapon. They know how to take, you know, bandage a wound. They know how to take care of their fellow soldiers in combat. Every one of those soldiers, whether they're in a formation that's been designated as RFX or not, they know they're in RFX, and they know their number one responsibility is to be ready as an individual soldier, which is why when we went to what we call a virtual battle assembly, which is giving soldiers credit uh, for basically they're doing their monthly drill, their battle assembly, uh, without necessarily having to travel long distances to do that work, but they you know, could do it you know, at home as individual soldiers or small teams. Um, and we would account for them and make sure they did some some of the tasks that they needed to do to build their individual readiness. But we're able to very comfortably give them credit for doing that because that's fundamental, you know, foundational uh, to their responsibilities as a soldier inside our effects. I think that that level of sort of um, expectation um, on our soldiers to maintain that individual readiness and their collective readiness as organizations. I don't think that's going to dissipate anytime soon. As far as how has it changed me, um, I think it's um, <laughs> this may sound counterintuitive. I think it's made me even. Um, I, I don't. I probably don't come across as humble, but I'm humble in this regard. Um, I recognize that um, you know it's been a tremendous honor to lead this formation of uh, incredibly wonderful people. Um, to, to try to do the best I can every day to serve them and serve the nation. I think uh, it, it's, despite the size of the organization and all of the awesomeness of the team, um, I recognize that my ability to get everything done that I wanted to get done or do all, make all of the changes that I thought needed to be made, uh, that you know I failed miserably in many respects in that regard. Um, so I think you know it's given me a – I guess more, maybe just a little bit more mature sense of uh, my own limitations as a human being and as a, you know, and as a leader. Um, I think it, I think it's also given me a context, a perspective that frankly, probably not many folks get to have. Um, I, I, I really do believe that that's, um, in fact, I wrote a piece the other day when I woke up from surgery on gratitude. Um, I acknowledge that, you know, the many of the gifts that I've been given in my life as a leader, as a soldier, as a husband, as a dad, um, were things I never earned. Um, they just, I just, 
you know, um, I just, I got them. And, uh, you know, and so I think I have a sense of profound humility um, over the fact that I've been given this tr- tr- incredibly powerful set of responsibilities and opportunities as a leader, as a soldier, um, and as a commander. And um, most people don't get the opportunity uh, to do what I've been given the opportunity to do. Uh, I know I didn't earn it. Um, I, w- I will continue to do everything I can to, to maximize the value of what I've learned um, to, to serve my fellow citizens and, frankly, um, everybody else on the planet. Um, so I, I think it's given me, I guess, a, a more mature sense of both the limitations uh, to my own abilities and to the, you know, sort of by the, the profound reality, which is I didn't earn it. Um, I got, I got, a, I got a chance to do something that most people don't get a chance to do, and uh, it's, 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 it's a pretty cool thing to be able to lead uh, what I regard as um, what, I, what I call the cool kids in school, uh, America's <laughs> Army Reserve, and uh, so I, I think it's probably, uh, in an odd sort of way, just made me feel uh, even more committed to ever than I got. My job is to keep pounding and keep doing what I can to, to, to serve my fellow man and serve my fellow citizens. And so we'll do that. So General, how important is employer support to the success of the U S army reserve mission? Well, as you know, we've talked about this before. I mean, it's, it's, it's everything, right? Because at the end of the day, the, the, the two people that really share us, uh, with the nation or our families and our employers. When I say us, I'm talking uh, Army Reserve soldiers. And so uh, the employers out there that are continuing to share their employees with the Army and with me as the leader of the, this component of the Army are, are truly partners in the national security fabric uh, of the United States. And so I, I constantly reinforcing that message with not only the employers, but everybody out there who's influencing the influencers in America, whether that's, you know, whether that's Michael Keegan um, broadcasting this or me talking to elected officials, whether it be at the federal or state level, uh, constantly reinforcing that theme that we, as in my view, as a nation need to acknowledge that in and this is true for the for the for the National Guard as much as the Army Reserve, um, and it's true for all of the services, so the Marine Corps Reserve and the Navy Reserve and Air Force Reserve. But as a nation, we are basically able to reach in and grab incredible capability out of the reserve components of the U.S. military at a significant cost savings to the taxpayer, and 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 do so because the employers out there uh, are continuing to share the best talent in the world. Uh, with us in the reserve component. So I just can't underscore uh, too much how important that that continued sustained sharing support is. So General Lucky, as you come to the end of this uh, leadership role and uh, being the commander of uh, U.S. Army Reserve Command, what's next for you? I don't really know yet. I mean, Julie and I have talked about it a little bit. Uh, frankly, uh, I mean, I know this sounds sort of trite, but, you know, we're kind of sprinting to the tape. I mean, you know, COVID, there's a lot of things that we're, you know, we're supposed to take some leave and do some house hunting and X, Y, Z, but, you know, because of the current, you know, challenge that we're, we're confronting as a nation and as an army and, and, and in this component, uh, none of that's happened. Um, we sort of just decided, you know, we're going to wait and sort of see um, after after we change command and, um, and step down from this position, what, what do we do next and where do we do it? 
Um, our minds are really pretty open. I, the one thing I can tell you is, you know, I, and I sort of just touched on it, but the one thing I've learned through this is I can't quit. You know, I can't, I mean, there's a part of me, you know, my dad was a, was a congregational minister from New England and we used to spend the summers, you know, trout fishing in the West and I, you know, and I love backpacking and, and, um, you know, I'm an outdoor sort of person. That's why I was an infantry officer. And, and, and so I, I, uh, there's a part of me would love to just go fishing, but you know, my reality is now, nah, I mean, there's, there's, there's stuff we got to do. I probably write. Uh, I need to collect my thoughts a little bit. You know, some of the questions you've asked me are really good and will give me some more, some more ways to think about how I really articulate um, my answers better later. So we'll talk, we'll talk, we'll talk, we'll talk in a year. Yeah, but Absolutely. no, but I, I think I want to um, sort of give, give myself a chance to sort of uh, distill down to, you know, some degree of sort of coherence, some of the things I've learned and, and experience and then, um, and then continue to give back as best I can. And whether that's, um, in a number of different venues and a number of different ways or not, we'll sort of figure it out, but I, I probably will do some writing, um, and as, as part of the distillation process. I've learned over the years, one of the things that really does help me crystallize thoughts is just sitting down in a disciplined fashion and, and writing stuff out and then editing and sort of trying to focus it. So I'll do that. Um, but I'll stay, I'll stay engaged and, I'll, and I will continue to try to coach, teach, and mentor as best I can wherever I go. So other than that, too soon to say. I, I know what well, I learned a long time ago. Uh, for me, my job is to, de- is, is to, is to decide what I'm not going to do. And, uh, <laughs> that, that I can, that I can, that I'm comfortable. I got a list of stuff I know I'm not going to do, but that, but it's, it's, uh, the list of things that I, I could do that I would find rewarding, um, and uplifting and of value, uh, it's probably pretty long. So, uh, you know, I'll probably have to pick two or three and call it good. Uh, but I think that's what we'll do. So general, what advice would you give someone who's thinking about a career in public service? Yeah, I would say, um, let me just talk public service for a minute. I, I'll leave the military. I mean, if I talk military, it'll sound um, potentially self-serving. I, I'll just say this. I, I think that um, – because you asked me this three years ago. Yes, uh, I did. Pu- public service, yeah. And, and I, uh, now more than ever uh, – and we, I don't know if we have time to talk about it. I'm happy to if you want to. But now more than ever, I think we – we have got to acknowledge that public service um, is a is a huge part of the common good, and and in, for for the nation uh, for sure, if not the world. And so I, I think uh, uh, I think we are seeing now a conversation about governance, um, about uh, about institutions, about the importance of uh, of governance, about the criticality of institutions. Um, and I think that there is a, I think there will be a conversation in America um, about these things, um, perhaps more vigorously over the next couple of years. And I would just say, anybody who's thinking about um, serving the public um, is thinking about something that I think is extraordinarily important, and and I would say extraordinarily rewarding. Um, because I think that one of the things we're, we're seeing, and I saw this just, I mean, again, you know, two weeks ago in, you know, in New Jersey or in, in Pennsylvania or in Connecticut or in Boston, um, over and over and over again, uh, civilians who work in the public sector or who are um, committed to supporting uh, the public sector, um, 
doing incredible things, uh, very selfless, and in many cases, it, 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 it risks to themselves, significant risks to themselves from a COVID infection perspective, doing incredible things. Um, and doing it with a, again, you know, leading with love, uh, serving selfless, selflessly and deriving immense satisfaction from it. And so I just think that this is, I, th I think that your question that you asked me three years ago is even, is even more, uh, poignant today. You know, uh, can I, can I give two thumbs up for s serving, uh, the people, uh, two thumbs up for, for competent governance, uh, two thumbs up for, you know, uh, enlightened leadership that's willing to accept responsibility and 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 drive effects, and uh, and and when it fails or stumbles, acknowledge it and get up and dust itself off and keep moving. Absolutely, um, and so I I will encourage anybody and everybody um, to to think seriously about serving. Um, in any number of capacities, not just because uh, the world needs it or the nation needs it, but because I think it, I really do believe that um, th those who serve others are 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 the, by and large the happiest people on earth. Well, General, it was great to see you again to talk to you. I wish we could have done it in person, but thank you once again for being with me for sharing your insights. But more importantly, General, I would like to thank you for your dedicated service to the country. Well, Michael, I appreciate it. I, I want to thank you for uh, for for doing this again. Um, I really did enjoy our our meeting three years ago, and I'm glad we got a chance to at least do this virtually. Um, I hope uh, one of these days you and I get a chance to get together again, um, yeah. you know, face to face, and 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 that enables me to practice what I preach, which is be present. <laughs> um, you know, I did, I just, just so you know, you know, anecdotally, I tell, I tell the soldiers out at, at the, at the pre-command course, I said, you know, the reason I fly out here every month is because I'd be a hypocrite if I got, you know, went, went up on a VTC and told you, Hey, you, you need to be, you need to be present, you know, and I'm a thousand miles away. That's not, doesn't count, you know, but, uh, but this, um, you know, I think you and I can give each other a break on, uh, on this one today, yeah. but I would I'd love to see you again, uh, face to face one of these days. This has been the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with Lieutenant General Charles Lucky, Chief of Army Reserve and Commanding General of the U.S. Army Reserve Command. Be sure to join us next week for another informative, insightful, and in-depth conversation on improving government leadership and its effectiveness. Subscribe, download, and listen to the entire interview at Podcast One, iTunes, or on your favorite podcast app, and as always at businessofgovernment.org. This has been the Business of Government Hour. Be sure to visit us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. There you can learn more about our programs and get a transcript of today's conversation. Until next week, it's businessofgovernment.org. How can government best use big data to transform decision-making, public services delivery, and communication? The IBM Center Report, Integrating Big Data and Thick Data to Transform Public Services Delivery by Yan Yan Ang presents five recommendations for public managers introducing the concept of mixed analytics, urging thick data, meaning qualitative information about users, to be presented alongside big data to improve government decision-making. Visit businessofgovernment.org to read more. Each week on the Business of Government Hour, government executives and thought leaders join host Michael Keegan for an informative, insightful, and in-depth conversation on improving government and its effectiveness. 
these individuals are truly changing the way government does business. So join them each week on the Business of Government Hour. Find out how the business of government isn't business as usual. The Business of Government Hour, every Monday at 11 a.m. on Federal News Network.